0: It seems like every Sunday I stand up here now. I've just returned from another church-related trip. Last week, it was just seven days after returning with our mission team from Poland. And then on Tuesday of this week, Peter Boyer, one of our elders, and he's also on staff as discipleship director, he and James, our associate, and I, we went to uh, the National Disciple Makers Convention In Nashville Tennessee didn't want to do trips like that back-to-back but it was something we couldn't pass up and uh, so that was our workplace on the road in a way and we were living together and eating together and learning some things about one another and uh, Peter Boyer I'm going to nickname wrong way Boyer because he was always going the wrong way on the big highways our intention on Thursday night was to go downtown, see some of Nashville. And we're driving, and the city's getting further and further away. And so finally we realized we were going in the opposite direction, 30 minutes out of our way, but we saw some of the city as well as participated in some amazing workshops and worship sessions. So the message today is focused on our workplace. And the title is Love Where You Work. Now, you have to be careful in the way that you say that. You have to put the emphasis on the correct word. The title isn't Love Where You Work, but it's Love Where You Work. Because I read the studies and I read the surveys and I see that a lot of you don't actually like your jobs. And I'm not going to try to convince you to like your job. The message isn't Love Where You Work, but it's Love Where You Work. So we want you, no matter what you do for a living, to see that God has placed you there because he wants you to show his love to the people that are in your workplace. And then we're also going to focus our message on those of you who are going to school. And just imagine the impact that we could have as a church if we were just strategic and intentional at loving the people that God puts in our path each day. So let's say that you work at one of those jobs where you work 40 hours a week. I've heard of jobs where you, you, you work that few hours. And you, you work from the age 21 to age 65, so that's 91,000 hours of your life that you spend at work. So it's a lot of time to spend on the job. And we don't just sit around, we don't just wait for the end of the day to come, we want God to use us to make a difference. So if you have your Bibles with you or if you have a Bible app, like we were actually scolded this week because some of us were pulling out our phones and the speaker said, You're pastors, why aren't you carrying a Bible around? And Ooh, yeah. Uh, so it, it's okay if you use your devices here today or you can follow along on the screen. But we're going to look at Colossians 3 because in this chapter, Paul is going to give us a talk about living out our faith in the work environment. But I need to give you a heads up. He's going to be talking about slaves and masters. And that's his way of addressing it. Because we're going to come to an understanding of how that situation is much different than what we understand when we hear the word slave. So he does condemn slavery along with a whole list of things in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We also know that the law is not made for good people, but for those who are against the law and for those who refuse to follow it. It is for people who are against God and are sinful, who are unholy and ungodly, who kill their fathers and mothers, who murder, who take part in sexual sins who have sexual relations with people of the same sex, who sell slaves, who tell lies, who speak falsely, and who do anything against the true teaching of God. So he does condemn slavery along with a whole list of other things. But in this society, about a third of the population were slaves. So their entire economy was actually based on this system. And there was abuse of it, of course, But this is so much different than the slavery that we read about that happened in the country to our south. Uh, Scott Barchi said, with first century slavery, it's important to note that racial factors played no role. So that wasn't a part of the slavery in the context that we're looking at here this morning. These guys, they were actually encouraged to get an education, slaves could own property. You'll find instances of people who sell themselves into slavery because that life is so much better than what they were already experiencing. So there were slaves in those days who were doctors and teachers and writers and accountants, and the list just goes on and on. So we pick up in chapter 3, verse 22, and here's what Paul says. "'Slaves, obey your masters in all things.'" Do not obey just when they are watching you to gain their favor, but serve them honestly because you respect the Lord. In all the work you are doing, work the best you can. Work as if you were doing it for the Lord, not for people. Remember that you will receive your reward from the Lord, which he promised to his people. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the message. And if we're going to be God's ambassadors in our workplace, then it begins with an understanding that it's Jesus that we're working for. So no matter what your job or my job is, we are ultimately on assignment from God. And I've been put there to make a difference for his kingdom. So Paul says, well, there are a few implications then. He, he says, first of all, I'm not going to do my best work when the just when the boss is watching. I'm going to do my best work all the time because God is watching. And then another implication is it also means that your boss is kind of taken out of the equation. A lot of people can justify not liking their jobs or doing poorly at work or just killing time instead of really doing their best because they don't necessarily like their boss. When James and Peter and I were running through customs on the way home, because our flight was an hour and a half late, and we had to take a shuttle from where we were to the terminal that had customs, and then we had to run from there, catch a bus to the next terminal for our departure. But as we were going through customs, James went first, and then I went next, and the guy said are you two together? And I said, yes. And then he goes, oh, you must be the boss. And I said, well, thank you for noticing that. I'm the lead pastor, and he's the associate. And that would have been a perfect opportunity to talk a little more with him. But the bus was waiting to run off to our next destination. But people were asked why they didn't like their bosses. And the number one answer was, because he or she tells me what to do. And and, and that's what a boss does But we tend to naturally question those in authority. In my first and only other ministry in Dornridge, New Brunswick, I had organized a grade one to six Wednesday night group, and it was held in this woman's home, and she was helping out with teaching the kids. So her five-year-old son was there, and he was the smartest little guy, but... He was mischievous too, and he was getting into trouble one night, and I just said, look, Adam, like, you're not supposed to be doing that. And he just, like this, you have no authority over me. Like, you're not the boss of me. And I was looking down, you little squirt. But at <laughs> but, but he, he a young age, people will recognize that they don't want anyone in authority over me. So maybe you can give examples of why your boss really isn't a likable person. Like, my boss makes unreasonable demands. Like, my boss plays favorites. Or my boss is a micromanager. But it would go a long way toward making God look good if we live that out in the workplace. So there are these things about our bosses that can wear us out and we can find it difficult it can make it challenging and so paul says you work for jesus and because of that there's a totally different motivation so remember verse 23 he said work the best you can so if you're working for jesus then you're giving it all you have and we would have an incredible testimony as believers if we approached our work that way. It would make God look so good if we lived that out in our lives. Like one guy was saying that on a really hot and humid day, he was at a work site, and he saw this man walking along, dragging this big hose behind him. And the man was humming, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And then he proceeded to go over to the porta-potties and clean them out with that hose. And as someone went up to him, they didn't get too close at a safe distance, but they just inquired about, why are you humming that joyful song while doing that job? And the guy said, I used to hate my job. And then someone taught me that my work was to be my worship. And when I started thinking it, of it that way, then it really made a difference. And that's the spirit that Paul wants us to get here, that what you do is an act of worship, no matter what it is that you do, it, even if it's cleaning out porta potties, you do it with all your heart is on to the Lord. You realize that Jesus is your boss and he's watching, He knows. And then Paul speaks of this inheritance that comes from Jesus based on how we do the work and assignments that he has given to us here on earth. So in chapter 4, he then goes on to address the masters or the bosses. So verse 1. Masters, give what is good and fair to your slaves. Remember that you have a master in heaven. So you masters have a master too. Just as you're in authority over other people, don't forget that someone is in authority over you and that someone is God. And just as people are called to give an account to you, you are called to give an account to God and report to Him. If you want God to treat you fairly, then you treat your employees fairly. And he reminds them again that God is working for them. So whether you're an employee or you're an employer, the challenge is to do all your work with love. That's what we're focused on. We're demonstrating God's love in our workplace. So how do we do our jobs? can communicate that, but to be really practical, it's how we love the people that we work with. But we don't need to be challenged on loving the people that are easy to love But there are people that aren't so easy to love. People that we work with, people that we go to school with. might be true in our neighborhood, might even be true in our homes. There might be people that are difficult to love. So in any relational context, we are challenged to love people. Research says the primary reason people don't like their jobs isn't because they don't like their jobs, it's because they don't like their co-workers. And maybe that's how some of you feel. Maybe you're thinking, know, I could love where I work if it weren't for the people that are there. Like, I think I could pull that off. But God, oftentimes, He surrounds us with just the people that He wants there. People that are difficult to love. In the book, High Maintenance Relationships, they outline different personality types that can actually drain us and it's because they don't like their co-workers and so here are some profiles and you might see a name or a face that you can put to each one of these but if you think of a name don't say it out loud and if it's the person seated next to you don't look at them or make a funny noise or even blink because they, they will catch on to that. But just be listening to see if you know some people that fit these profiles. So the critic, this is the person who's constantly complaining, nagging, and giving unwarranted advice. Now, you might not work with someone like that, but maybe some of you are married to a person like that. But it's the nitpicky boss, the complaining co-worker, the business partner, who's always second-guessing your decisions. And some characteristics of the critic, they know how and when to do pretty much anything. And no matter what you do and how well you do on something, they could have done it better, and they will show you how they could have done it better. You feel defensive around this person, and their hobbies include shopping, golf, and pointing out your mistakes. They seem to delight in that. And normally when I preach on a message where it's going to hit on me a little bit and my family members are going to be present, I have the week leading up, I really work on it and I try and clean this part of my life up. But I've been awake all week and got home at two o'clock Saturday morning. So my most of my family were right out there in the first service and I was getting some looks throughout that message. So I'm a little more relaxed today. I just have a daughter and son-in-law over here at this service. But then you've got the murder. This person is forever a victim. They seem to just be racked with self-pity. They tend to always communicate. Nobody notices what I do around here. I'm not appreciated for all the effort that I put in. And they want you to feel sorry for them. And there tends to always be something upsetting going on in their lives all the time. And you don't mean to, but you'll say, how was your weekend? And as soon as you say it, why did I say that? All I meant to say was hi, because you know you're going to get something from them. And you brace yourself for the answer. So the martyr is always feeling sorry for themselves, and they want everyone else to feel sorry for them. And then you've got the wet blanket. This person is pessimistic and automatically negative. Even when they try to say something positive, it comes off as negative. And you know people like that? They might even be trying to give a compliment, but then at the last minute it just kind of turns and they say something negative. They might be at a wedding with you and they'll say, isn't this such a beautiful wedding? And you think, okay, they've got some hope here. And then, but that bride's hair was just horrible. Why didn't she get her hair fixed up before her wedding and all those pictures? So the person tried but just couldn't do it so you know people like that you work with them maybe you live with them they're in our church i've had people say i really enjoyed your message today and the favorite part was the conclusion and that's an offhand It was time to get out of here so they try to be positive but it comes off as negative then there's the superstar my daughters all looked at me on this one They have to be the center of attention. They help you, actually, they really help you practice your listening skills because they're talking most of the time. Someone else will tell a story and no matter how impressive that story is, they've got one that's just a little bit better. They can match it. They can beat it. They want the spotlight turned on themselves. And you see their Facebook posts and they're always doing that. Every post, it, it, it They could basically be saying, my life is better than your life, just so you know, or my kids are better than your kids, or my marriage is better than your marriage. They're always drawing attention to themselves. And then there's the steamroller. The steamroller is just highly insensitive to others, and they tend to be oblivious to how they make other people feel. They will say, well, I was just trying to tell the truth, I was just being helpful, but they don't really consider other people's feelings. And up next is the control freak. This is the one who has to be in charge. And this person can be a bit of a micromanager. And if you're going somewhere, they have to be the one driving. No matter how you do your job, they'll not only tell you that they could have done better, but they will show you how they could have done it better. You know... (coughs) i arrived home at 2 a.m and i opened the dishwasher i had to eat something we missed the meal on our final flight and the dishwasher was just all astray and i had to straighten the knives and the forks out a little bit so we have some of that going on in our family and then up next is the backstabber this is the person who can't be trusted Maybe they've been working with you on a project at school or at work and they've not really contributed anything. And then it comes presentation time and they stand out there as if they've done all the work. So these people are out there. They're just maybe... They're talking behind your back. It's a co-worker that does that, or in they agree with you on an issue at work, and then, in a public setting, they talk behind your back. They disagree with you and then there's the green-eyed monster who sees with envy. Some people think that they have to be the best at everything, and then they're not. And whoever it is, they feel like they need to take that other person down a little bit in order to make themselves feel better. And the last uh, type of individual is the sponge, constantly in need, but they never give anything back. So can you put a name and face to anyone in that category? When you see them coming, you can just kind of feel the emotional energy beginning to drain out of you, and you know that they're going to need something, but they never give anything back. So have you been able to identify a coworker, a family member, a neighbor? And here's another question. Would anybody have identified you in any of these? And if your answer is no, then we're going to have to come up with a whole new category for you because you're somewhere on that list, and you might even be a few of those things. But we tend to draw attention to how difficult it is for us to love someone else. But we don't like looking in the mirror so much and maybe recognizing some of the things about ourselves that make us a little tough to live with at times. So now Paul is going to give some general instructions for how we are to love and treat one another. And it's in the context of the workplace. So we're in verse 2. And the first thing he says, I'm just reading the first part of the verse. We're going to see this verse three times. But he says, devote yourselves to prayer. So that's where we want to start. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Like we want to be able to go to work we want to be able to go to school we want to do it in a way in which we're praying for other people so can you just imagine what would happen if we did that tomorrow if we all prayed for our fellow students and our co-workers it would make a huge difference in our lives and in their lives as well so just go ahead and think of the name of someone that that might be for you if you're retired and you don't work outside the, or you don't work outside the home then think of somebody that you're going to interact with on Tuesday and that you could pray for so who would that be would it be the person that works down the hall from you is it somebody that you'll run into at lunch students maybe it's that person that sits to the left or the right of you during the second class of the day like whoever that is Would you decide that you were going to start praying for that person, that you were going to devote yourself to prayer? And then he says in the next part of that second verse, being watchful. Now that phrase is the idea of paying attention, of being alert. And you're not just there, but you're present. You're not just punching a clock and then getting out of there at the end of the day. You're not just waiting for the class bell to ring, but you're paying attention. And then in the last part of that second verse, he says, being watchful and thankful. So that's the attitude and the general spirit that we should have, that we should be known for. We don't want to be generally annoyed. We don't want to be irritated for no reason people. But we have the love of Christ. We have the joy of Christ. So we are thankful for His grace constantly. And in the third verse, Paul says, "...pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about His mysterious plan concerning Christ. This is why I am here in chains." So Paul is giving us these instructions while he's in jail. Pray that I can speak in a way that will make it clear as I should. So do you hear what he's saying here? He's giving us instructions while he's chained up in prison. And he says, yeah, you might not like your job, but my job is currently to be on assignment in prison. So Your cubicle may not be the most conducive workplace, but I'm chained up right now. But in spite of all of that, his focus is on clearly proclaiming the love of Christ where he's at. And there's something really neat in this passage. He is asking the church to pray for him while he's in prison. Now, if that was you, what would you be praying for? You'd be praying, Are asking the people to pray for you that you would get out of prison. But not Paul. He's praying that he would have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Christ clearly. So instead of praying, God, help me to find a different job. God, help me to just survive this school year. God, help me to just... Why don't we just say, God would you just help us to be different? Would you help us to begin to pray for people? And, and if we began to do that, if we began to look for opportunities to make the love of God known in our workplace, it would make a tremendous difference in our lives and the lives of the people that we work with. Colossians 4, verse 5, "...be wise in the way you act with people who are not believers." making the most of every opportunity. And we'll actually come back to that section. When you talk, you should always be kind and pleasant so you will be able to answer everyone in the way you should. So the way you talk can do a lot in the workplace and at school to communicate the love of Christ. Now, is your conversation always kind and pleasant? is it full of grace or is it full of criticism is it full of grace or is it full of complaining the words we use and the tone we use will go a long way toward communicating the love of Christ i will just skip back to verse 5 now be wise in the way you act with people who are not believers so these are people that aren't part of the church people that don't know Jesus so he says, be especially wise in the way that you act toward them, making the most of every opportunity that you have. So the challenge is to be strategic and intentional, to make the most of the opportunities, because God will give the opportunity to us to show love to the people that we share life with. And it's important to note that it's making the most of every opportunity. It's not that you are forcing the opportunity. We arrived home so late Friday night that we didn't want to bother any of our family members to pick us up. So we took a taxi from the airport and I started, I talked to everybody, I talked to the people to the left and the right of me, the rest of our group, they were all seated everywhere else by themselves or together as a group. And I interact with people wherever I'm at. So I start talking to this taxi driver and he reveals that you know he's a Muslim, so we get into a conversation about Jesus. And, and I, I didn't force anything. I just went with the way the conversation was going. And the guy was driving 65 kilometers per hour. And I thought, okay, maybe it's my talking. And this conversation is distracting him. So I stopped talking for a couple of minutes didn't speed up any, so we went right back into conversation. But we, we don't force the opportunities. We wait for God to provide those opportunities. And then the important thing is that we step up and we step into the opportunities. We, but we kind of miss those sometimes, don't we? And then afterwards, we look back and we realize, oh, you know, there was a chance for me to say something to that person. Like, how many of you, just by nature, can be a little indecisive? Like, just your, raise your hand if you're a little bit like that. Like, some hands went up right away. That's good. You're getting better. You're, you're working on that. Like, but the truth is, a lot of us feel that way. We want to think things through. We want things to go the right way. But we tend to just hesitate a little bit. And we see that opportunity And then we just kind of let it pass before we decide to do something about it. So that's why Paul says, making the most of every opportunity. And that phrase in Greek literally means to redeem the time. And there are two different Greek words for time. One is the generic reference for the broad scope of time. But the other Greek word for time is a specific and appointed time. It's like an appointment on your calendar. And that's the word that Paul uses here. He says, you have an appointment. Make the most of the appointments that God has placed in your life. Now, I know that you approach a work week where you've probably got a lot of things on your calendar already. There are probably a lot of appointments that you've made that you have to keep. But God's calendar... He's got his own calendar here, and he has a calendar for your work week, and he has set some appointments for you this week. He has some moments established whereby he has set you up to interact with somebody else. So what we need to pray for is for open eyes so that we can see those opportunities that God puts before us. Just understand that there are going to be those moments this week where it's not just an accident that you sit next to this person in the lunchroom, or it's not an accident when you walk by someone's cubicle and you see them a little emotional and upset, and you're not sure if you should say something. It's not an accident when someone's name comes to your mind. And during this message, God has an appointment for you on his calendar, and he wants you, he wants me, to make the most of it. So that's our commitment as a church, that we're going to love where we work, that we're going to show God's love to the people that he puts in our path each week, whether it's at work, whether it's at school. So I just want to pray for you and that individual that you have brought to your mind, that you want to show the love of God to this week.